This episode is sponsored by Podcorn. We just started using Podcorn and it's been a super interesting experience so far. I really like being able to shop around on the marketplace where podcasters of all sizes can pick and choose sponsorship opportunities on the platform and collaborate with brands directly without any exclusivities. You can choose between submitting for host read ads, interview segments, topical discussions, and so much more. And you're never giving up any of the rights to your podcast in the process. Podcorn makes sure that you're protected and fairly compensated for your work by letting you choose your own rates. And they also offer transparency, creative freedom, and full control of how and when to monetize your podcast. Click the link in our show notes to sign up for Podcorn and start browsing sponsorship opportunities today. And did I mention it's completely free? So remember, click the link in our show notes to sign up for Podcorn and find your sponsors today. Hello, and welcome back to Shockingly Wicked, a true crime podcast where we bring you true crime cases from the headlines to the hometowns. I'm Brianna. I'm Brittany. And we are your hosts for the evening. I have spent the last <laughs> half an hour-ish, 20 minutes, mm-hmm. trying to get... We've, we've tried to start recording multiple times, and things have just frozen on my end, and I don't know why. So I'm going to throw my computer, like my desktop computer, out of, out of the window. Because that's going to fix it, obviously. <laughs> Not me this time. <laughs> yes. I don't know what happened. Uh, I Nothing's really changed except a few things got updated. So I'm, I don't know, I'm annoyed. But it is what it is. I'm recording from my laptop now. So <laughs> other than that frustrating thing, I don't know. This week has just been a week for me. I popped two tires on my car, too. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, I skimmed a curb, so they were just being very dramatic when they popped, because <laughs> like they both of them didn't need to do all of that. <laughs> what did your dad say? Um, my dad didn't really say anything. I think he said like, "Uh oh." <laughs> I love your dad. To be fair, I was bringing him his spare key because he locked his keys in the car, so he has no room to talk. Really, <laughs> I love your dad. Uh-oh. <laughs> I had to pay 440 something dollars, I think it was, for my tires. And then all of this with the computer, I'm just like, can you stop trying to squeeze money out of me, universe? I'm trying to save. <laughs> the universe said, no. <laughs> yeah, the no. universe is like, that. I considered it, but the answer is, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> so that's where I'm at today, this week. So how, how about you, Britt? How are you? I have done... Okay, so... I work at an apartment complex, but the sister property has been on Firewatch. And if you don't know what Firewatch means, somebody has to walk the property every hour on the hour to ensure there is not a fire. And I've taken all the night shifts. I mean, I don't need money. I just like OT, so I've taken it. Mm -hmm. But this is like my third week in a row doing it at least once. And today, I... Last night I did it from like 11 to 7 and then I went in for like 5 hours. My regular job. And it's my body's like, eh, fuck you, dog. You're not 17. <laughs> I'm so tired. It's it's reminding you, you can't do all these all-nighters anymore. <laughs> 
anyway, <laughs> now that we got that all all that venting out of the way, yes, you are being not paid to be our venting buddies. Today's case, I'm very intrigued by it. There are a couple of documentaries out there that got released, I believe, last year about this particular case. I didn't watch either of them just because I didn't want to like color my opinion and the facts that I found through research with the the spin that the documentaries were giving because both documentaries like most documentaries are going to give you a spin depending on what kind of message they're trying to <laughs> they're trying yeah. to get you to believe so i tried to just focus mainly on the facts i didn't watch those i'll probably watch them after we record this episode might make a comment or two in the next episode who knows whatever but we are going to be talking about the murder of sophie toscan de plantier and i'm very excited because i get to flex my french muscles a little bit <laughs> <laughs> with these pronunciations. So I'm intrigued to see Brittany's opinion about this too, because the the most interesting part about this is that there was like somebody who was like the primary suspect, but in Ireland where the murder happened, the evidence was not substantial enough to bring him to court, but he was tried for first degree murder in France and they found him guilty because Sophie is a French citizen and uh, according to French law, they're allowed to investigate crimes that happen either to or with French citizens. So that was the whole reason why they were able to to even try him. So it's just very interesting, like the differences in the legal systems between the two countries and then also just all of the facts and things surrounding the case. So we're going to dive into that. This is the murder of Sophie Toscan du Plantier. So Sophie, she was born in Paris, France on July 28th, 1957. She was born to Marguerite and Georges Bougnol. Marguerite was actually a former, well, she is a former deputy mayor of the second arrondissement de Paris. Um, an arrondissement is uh, basically an administrative district, and there are 20 of them in the city of Paris. So I guess I kind of look at it as like a county almost, like, you know, how each state has, like, different counties, and each of them have their own, like, city governments. And then there's, like, the larger, I guess, the state level. That would kind of be, like, the country level, if that makes any sense. <laughs> yeah. And then George was a dentist before he retired. So Sophie had two siblings that I know of. She had two brothers named Bertrand and Stefan. I'm not 100% sure if those were her only siblings. Those are just two of the ones that I saw mentioned in the articles. Um, I also don't know where in the birth order she fell. So she married her first husband, Pierre-Jean Baudet, in 19... I have a typo here. <laughs> I have 1987-9. <laughs> so 1987, I believe, is what I meant to type, but it could also be 1989. Who knows? I don't. Um, they had a son, which was Sophie's only child, named Pierre-Louis Baudivignon. Uh, the marriage ended when Pierre-Louis was only a year old, so it didn't last super long from what I gathered. I didn't find a whole lot on what the relationship was actually like. The only thing I really found was Pierre-Louis talking about his relationship with his mother and saying that they were very close. Aww. So th this is a quote directly from him talking about his relationship with his mother. So, quote, My parents divorced when I was one, so very early I was very close to her. She was my whole world. She was my everything. We used to live together in a very small flat because we were not so rich. We shared the same bed from, I think, when I was one to maybe six. 
I was like a little monkey attached to her, following her everywhere in restaurants and festivals and galleries in the cinema. We had a very special connection and we were very much the same with the freckles, but she was an extraordinary mother, a romantic woman, a lovely person, unquote. So she sounds like she was just a very good mom based off of that. So I saw that initially she had wanted to become a lawyer or at least thought about becoming a lawyer, but then she eventually decided to go into television production. (laughs) She worked at a company called Uni France and climbed the ranks there. She was producing and directing documentary films when she met who would become her second husband, who was French film producer Daniel Toscan de Plantier. I guess he was like the CEO or I guess the president of that organization. I don't know if he was the president when they met or if he became the president at some point, but uh, they got married in 1991. And we all know how I feel about age gaps. There's a 16 year age gap. That's a little weird to me, but whatever. (laughs) No, thanks for me, but you do you. He had been married twice before her, and I believe also at least once after her. My man's, he don't know how to be right. alone. Yeah, he was. He, he got around, that's for sure. So, like I said, he was the president of Uni France, which is an organization for promoting French films. He was the president from 1988 until his death in 2003. So the pair were described basically as a power couple from what oh, I gathered. period. We love a power couple. <laughs> Yeah, because, like, they were both very big in, like, the film and television producing world, which I imagine was a big deal in, in France. I mean, why wouldn't it be? You see, you see how big a deal Hollywood is here and, like, yeah. Bollywood in India. So, like, it media influences the culture. Media is the culture. You're right. So Sophie was described as artsy, very dynamic, a young, impulsive woman, a tough character with a strict moral code who feared nothing. And despite being somewhat of a socialite in her position, she actually enjoyed her alone time. So it sounded like she might have been somewhat of an introvert. This is a quote. She was very social, but more than half of her was solitary, writing, thinking, meditating. So I wish I was a socialite. Do you, though? Because then you'd be followed around by, like, paparazzi. You'd have all of these expectations on you to, like, I don't know. It's it's like the Kardashians. Like, they've always got people's eyes on them. Although, to be fair, they probably m- make that happen. I was about to say, I don't really like the Kardashians, and I don't really consider them socialites. I consider Paris Hilton a socialite. I guess that's fair. Like, I think they started out as socialites, but then they, like with their connections and stuff that's what they started out as and then they eventually became into business owners which like more power to you whatever uh, but well kim started out as paris's oh yeah her assistant right yeah her assistant and then she made a sex tape and then that <laughs> i got remember released. that and that was when ryan seacrest was like hey i think your family would be good to do a tv show and then she would <laughs> Tell the paparazzi where she was. Yeah. And let me say, uh, the devil works hard, but Kris Jenner works harder. But Paris Hilton (laughs) was born into fame. Yeah, because obviously her family, like the whole Hilton dynasty. Mm -hmm. So then again, uh, Kim Kardashian's father was also on OJ's lawyer team. So Yeah, but before then, did anybody ever really know them? I mean, I think they were rich, but I don't think they really had any... 
Yeah. So people might have known them like in their circles, but maybe not like worldwide like they do now. So the pair lived in Paris with their son, but she visited Ireland often on holiday. That was kind of like her getaway from the socialite life. She apparently visited a lot as a teenager, and then she ended up buying a vacation home in, forgive me if I pronounce this incorrectly, but Irish names especially are spelled completely differently to how they're pronounced. (laughs) So it's spelled T-O-O-R-M-O-R-E, so I assume it's (laughs) Tourmore. So I could be wrong, but it's a remote area of rural West Cork in Ireland, and she bought this vacation home in 1993. It was a farmhouse that she considered basically her refuge from her busy life, and the locals there actually knew her, like, because she was there so often, but they knew her Mm -hmm. by her maiden name. She was 39 years old at the time of her death. So because we don't know for sure... If the primary suspect is the one who killed her, I'm not going to go into like his background information. So we're just going to go into the crime and then we'll talk about the investigation and some of the information that we gathered from there. So just throwing that out there. So the crime was December 23rd, 1996. Sophie had arrived in Ireland three days earlier on the 20th. She had plans to return to Paris for Christmas. So she wasn't staying there for a long time, but she was going allegedly from what I saw to make sure that the house would be okay for the winter because, you know, like with frozen pipes and all that, it's Mm -hmm. like, you want to make sure that (laughs) it's not going to burst when you're gone, especially when it's a place that you don't like, you're not there all the time. Yeah. At the time while she was in Ireland, her son was staying with his grandparents. So approximately 10 in the morning on the 23rd, her body was spotted by a neighbor lying on a path near the house. She had been brutally attacked. So, Uh The autopsy report showed she had at least 50 injuries. So she had been struck about 50 times with a stone slab, and then a concrete cavity block was dropped on her skull. Jesus Christ. I know. That was, it was a lot. Her mother said that, quote, her face was crushed to a pulp, unquote, because she saw her, I think it was before the funeral, I don't think it was an open casket, but it was like one of those things where they were preparing her for the funeral and they had like created a, some kind of mask to try and like cover up what had happened to her. But yeah, her mom said that her face was crushed to a pulp. So like whoever did this, like it was brutal. Yeah. Her fingers were broken, which indicated she might've like tried to like defend herself, fight back or something. And in the process, her fingers got broken And she ran through briars and encountered barbed wire, presumably as she was running away. So there's like cuts and stuff on her legs and on her arms. But I guess one good thing is there were no signs of sexual assault. I mean, you take the wins where you can get them, but it's still a very brutal murder regardless. So she was wearing a t-shirt and leggings at the time of her death. At least she was comfortable. It's true. That's true. There is no evidence of forced entry at the home, which likely indicates that she knew the killer or she at least willingly opened the door to her attacker. And this part makes me sad because, like, I can only imagine having to be in this situation. But Sophie's parents heard about the murder on the news. I hate when that happens. I hate when that happens. And then um, Pierre-Louis heard the news from his father. So at least he got told, like, personally and not by you know the news media being like so and so is murdered you know but like i can't even imagine being in that position because i don't know it that would suck 
Yeah. Especially because it's like, it's right around Christmas time too. Mm-hmm. So you're expecting like, oh, we're going to spend Christmas together in a few days. Everything's like fun and happy. Fine. And then, yeah. And then suddenly your world is rocked by watching the news. Why well, don't watch the news? Well, <laughs> I generally don't watch it. My mom used to watch it pretty much every night, but she hasn't really watched it lately. So when she would watch it, I would kind of like listen in a little bit, but that was about it. Yeah. So for the investigation, this was the first time that a murder had happened in the area in decades. So the police had very little experience with this sort of investigation because like it's a small town. So not this doesn't happen very often. Um, I think they said it was like at least 40 years prior that there had been a murder there. So everybody who was on the force at that point pretty much had never dealt with any murders <laughs> before. So from the start, the investigation was kind of mishandled. One of the blunders in particular included her body being left outside until the following day when the pathologist arrived, which made pinpointing a time of death impossible. Well, not only that, you're just allowing evidence to be ruined. Yeah, exactly. Like that was another thing I put in my notes is that they might have might have lost other evidence in the fact that they left something her body. That really wasn't evidence. Yeah, just because that's at least 24 hours in the elements with no preservation of any sort i mean i would assume they blocked off the crime scene at the very least but i didn't see anything but still even then like the fact that it took over 24 hours to get somebody out there to collect evidence like there's only so much that you can get at that point so there was a gate that had blood on it that was taken from the crime scene and then that gate was supposedly lost by the irish police yeah okay (laughs) so that was another thing you lose evidence I know. I I always wonder with things like that, like, did you just did you get fired it? for losing evidence? That's why I want to know. I would hope so. Cause, My like, anxiety would not let me. Yeah, there's got to be like a chain of custody type of thing where it's like, you, at least here. But then again, there's also differences in how things are handled from country to country. So you never really know. But I mean, I would hope that somebody got in trouble for that because that's a that's a key piece of evidence that could have like helped solve the case yeah and then other than her injuries what they did manage to determine was that there was one blood sample from the crime scene where the dna didn't match sophie's but the sample still remains unidentified so we don't know who it was essentially the suspects as always the husband's going to be the first person that they think of However, he was quickly eliminated because he was in France at the time of the murder and there were no indications of there being like significant marital problems at that point that would lead to a brutal murder of that nature. Yeah. But there was a former lover of Sophie's who was initially considered, I believe his name is Bruno Carbonet. He was an artist who allegedly assaulted Sophie and that's what had ended the relationship. But he had an alibi at the time. The person who became the primary suspect was a British journalist who had relocated to Cork in 1991 named Ian Bailey. He had moved to the area following a divorce with a plan to focus on writing poetry and gardening, is what he said. (laughs) Okay. It's very specific. I don't know why you can't do that in England, but... I don't know. I mean, okay, to be fair, Ireland is beautiful. I managed to go over there back in 2012, 2013. It's gorgeous over there. So I get it at, on that on that end. But isn't there <laughs> um isn't there a housing crisis in um England? 
Probably. I don't know. Well, I was just saying, if there is, like, there probably isn't a lot of room to garden. <laughs> I mean, that's fair. Because they're having to go up. At the same time, this was in the early 90s, so. Well, I don't know what it was like over there. I don't either, so that's why I it's like. I- it was crowded. That's why they decided to take America. <laughs> That was back in like the 1700s. Yeah, but imagine all those white people. There's a lot of people over there. You're not wrong. They're like, we need more land. We can only go up. (laughs) Okay, maybe. Maybe. I don't know. But yeah, that was that was what he said was he wanted to focus on poetry and gardening, which is very uh, cottage core. Is that what it's called? Cottage core? Basically, he was covering the case for multiple publications because I guess at that point he was a freelance journalist, so he could submit to like whoever. You can relate. Yeah. But I mean, (laughs) I would never be a journalist, though, because like that's so much work. (laughs) Because like this is kind of like journalism, but like only like a tiny fraction. (laughs) So it's like I can't even imagine like what that would be like as a full time job. So there were questions about the amount of detail and information in his articles. So apparently things he was detailing in the articles, like about the investigation, including about Sophie and the crime scene itself, like they came into question because it was like he had more information than he should have. Isn't he a journalist? Well, see, that was my thing. I was like, he's a journalist. So I'd assume he did research and he has connections who might have known some things, but The other thing was that the articles came out very quickly after the murder, so they believe the timing was strange and made quick research an unlikely possibility, which I get. But at the same time, if they lived in the same area, he probably knew somebody who knew her, you know? Yeah. Although he he did claim he he didn't know her, never met her or anything like that. So I guess when you balance that with the fact that he had all of this detailed information about her, I could see why they'd be suspicious. Yeah. So police noticed that he actually had scratches on his hands and forehead because they figured in an attack like that, especially where her fingers were broken, she was probably fighting back. The killer most likely had some sort of injuries. So these scratches went up his arms all the way to his elbows. So like that's pretty, pretty intense injuries. So when he was questioned about that, he explained that he had climbed a tree to cut its top off for a Christmas tree. And then he'd also like killed a turkey on December 22nd. So the night before. So that's how he got the injuries. And at first, his partner and her two daughters corroborated the statement. But there was a forester named John Brennan who said that the type of tree Bailey claimed to have climbed wouldn't have given him those types of injuries. And then there was another witness who saw him the evening of the 22nd at a pub between 11 p.m. and midnight who stated that they didn't see any of the marks or scratches on his hands or his face at that point. So he's saying he got them the night before, but he... You gotta trust the forester. They know what they're talking about. <laughs> I mean, that and then also the witness who, who saw them or saw him didn't see any scratches whatsoever because it's not one of those things where it's like they would develop over time you know like if you had like a slow allergic reaction like you see scratches pretty much instantly yeah and i said that the two daughters initially corroborated the statement but one of them named saffron thomas she stated that she had been the one to cut down the tree not ian because he was lazy (laughs) (laughs) so 
there's conflicting information there, you know, so it's yeah that I can that's just casting more suspicion on him. So Ian Bailey did actually willingly provide a hair sample, but he continued to deny any involvement in the murder, and he still does to this day. So in mar- multiple articles, he tried pointing the finger at other people, even going so far as to claim that Sophie's husband had hired a hitman. Okay, why don't... The hitman story... Just the hitman... If you just don't want to be with them anymore, just divorce them. You're just gonna... I know. It's gonna be more money <laughs> to murder them. Yeah, and honestly, it's not like this guy had any problem divorcing women. He had been married twice before her and gotten he divorced. He was a CEO. So. He said, I have money. It's fine. <laughs> So it's like, why would he need to hire a hitman? He's gotten divorced before. It's not like he couldn't just do it again. So I don't. I, that's that's why like the fact that he was pointing fingers at other people, trying to like, that seems a little sketchy to me. Because like as a journalist, like yeah, you can speculate, but can't assume. Yeah, literally being like, this is, I don't. I feel like that would be considered slander, because like no, that's defamation, absolutely. Yeah, because so, it's like you're saying that somebody hired a hitman to kill his wife, like. That could ruin what his kind career. Of, yeah, like, what kind of proof do you have there? You have none! So, so he mentioned the night before that he had uh, gotten the scrapes and all that. And then he also claimed that during the evening he had been working on writing and then he ended up going to bed. And at first, his partner... Yeah, that is what they all say. Right. So at first, his partner stated he'd been in bed all night with her, but then later allegedly stated that he had left bed at some point in the night and then returned again the next morning. So, I mean, that's a little suspicious. Why wouldn't you report that? Because I imagine when you're with somebody, you're trying to (laughs) protect them. But at the same time... You think I'm going to jail for conspiracy (laughs) or for knowing about a murder? Absolutely not. Self-preservation. We'll see. Not everybody has those instincts, you know? Brie, I'm sorry, but if you murder somebody, I'm going to write you beautiful letters (laughs) in prison to make you miss the outside world, but I'm telling on you. (laughs) R.I.P. Love you. (laughs) I would expect nothing less because I would do the exact same to you, so it's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Be like, yeah, man, she's got this true crime podcast, so she knows what she's doing. (laughs) Yeah, she she looked... I mean, just look at her search history. Come on. (laughs) So as the investigation progressed, there were over half a dozen people who claimed that Ian allegedly confessed to them about having been involved. Oh, okay. It's not like a good for you, Ian. (laughs) Yeah. We'll go more into this a little bit later. And obviously he denies making any of these statements. But the fact that there are so many of them, like, why would so many people make this up? You know, (laughs) I, that's what I, I mean, they could just want their five minutes of fame. That's possible, but it's like, when we go into it later, I'll kind of give a little bit more of my thoughts on it. But there were also multiple people who stated that Bailey loved the notoriety and attention that came with being the center of the investigation. (laughs) Okay, just be a stripper. (laughs) Seems a little narcissistic. And he also denied having ever met or known Sophie, which I mentioned before. But he claims he was doing some gardening work for Sophie's neighbor a guy named Alfie Lyons. What is this man with gardening? <laughs> yeah, I know, right? And he had seen her outside, but that was the extent of his knowledge of her. But Lyons said he was 90% sure he'd introduce the two of them. And there was another witness who was doing work for Sophie on that same day, Leo Bolger, who backs up that claim that they had been introduced. Period, Alfie. To be fair, there are people I get introduced to all the time and I don't remember them. <laughs> so, I mean, 
that that's also possible, but you know, it is what it is. So there were a couple of other people who also stated that Ian knew Sophie or that he had said he knew her. So, and we'll get right to that after a quick word about our sponsors. There's a guy named Paul Webster, who was the late Guardian Paris correspondent. Guardian Paris is a newspaper. So he received a call from Ian in mid-February 1997, where he said he knew Sophie, quote, quite well as an acquaintance, unquote. And then there was a woman named Ann Callahan, or Cahallan. I don't know how to pronounce it. It's C-A-H-A-L-A-N-E. So she was playing Sophie in a crime line reconstruction i don't know what that is i assume that's them kind of like walking through yeah it's when they um they usually videotape it um Mm -hmm. so they're able to play it back and the investigators can like essentially piece together what they think happened okay so she was playing sophie in one of those in mid-1997 of a visit sophie had made to three castles head on december 22nd And Three Castles Head, if I remember correctly, is like a local landmark in that area. When Bailey approached her and told her that he knew Sophie. And there are a handful of other people who make references to the connection between Ian and Sophie. And all of that is listed in the Irish Times article that's in the source list. So if you guys want to go check it out, feel free. But there's just so many of them, I didn't feel like writing all of them down because we only have so much time in this podcast. (laughs) So... Patrick Lowney made a statement that Ian Bailey had come to him in May of 2000 and asked him to discreetly develop a roll of film in his darkroom. And when he developed the pictures, it appeared to show, quote, a woman's body lying in front of a gateway leading to what looked like a farmyard, unquote, which he later identified as being the entrance to Sophie's home. So the significance of this is that it supports statements made by other journalists and photographers who stated that Bailey had offered them shots of the crime scene. Freelance photographer Mike McSweeney said Bailey had called him around 2 p.m. on the 23rd, offering photos he'd taken around 11 a.m., which contradicts Bailey's assertions he'd only learned about the murder at 1.40 p.m. There's some conflicting information here, which is the main reason why I brought that up. Because you would think that by that time in the afternoon, like the crime scene would have been roped off. So that nobody could like get probably not. They just stuff. left her outside. <laughs> I, mean, I you're don't not have a lot of faith. And then I did see in a couple places that there were stories of there being a bonfire in his backyard on the 26th, where materials oh, he was burning it down. clothes were being burned. But he also denies that that happened. So I don't remember which of the articles it was in, but I think it was in at least like two of them where they mentioned that. So there's the belief that he might have been burning the clothes that he wore when he murdered her, if he murdered her. So, something to note, Ian Bailey had a history of violence toward his partner at the time, Jules Thomas. So, there are three assaults that he actually admitted to committing. So, two of them were before the murder, and then one was after. So, it just kind of establishes a pattern of violent behavior. And that's not to say that that means he murdered somebody, because you can be an abusive asshole and still not be capable of murder. I guess. But... I feel like it's not a stretch to think that that's that that could happen, that you could just be pushed a little too far over the edge and then you end up doing it, you know. So one of them was in August of 1993. Another was in May 1996. And the last one was in August of 2001. 
that we know of. There might have been others, but those are the three that he actually like admitted to. So the 1996 assault, it was a couple of months before the murder uh, because it happened that same year in May. One of Bailey's former friends and Jules's daughter, Ginny, both reported finding Jules with a swollen, bleeding eye, scratches on her face, oh a bleeding God. mouth, and a tear inside of her mouth. I know. Like, it was a lot. Like, I can't even imagine why somebody would stay with a person after yeah. receiving. Bleeding. Yeah. Like, oh, that's... God. After receiving such vicious attacks at the hand of somebody that you care about like i don't understand how you can just how you can stay in that because it, it's scary I don't know. like i i get it that it's harder to pull away from somebody that you care about because it's you're probably thinking, if they like, don't care about they probably are just scared to leave at that point that's that's also entirely possible because it's like there's that aspect of it and then there's the other flip side where it's like i care so much about this person i want like we're just going through a rough patch. I think I we can get back to where we were before and constantly trying to like go back to quote better times unquote. It's not your responsibility to fix somebody. Yeah. Especially somebody who's harming you. Well, men like that typically I'm not saying I don't know if Jules is, but they typically look for women who are low self-esteem, bad background. That's true. Someone they can easily manipulate. That's true. So I don't actually know a whole lot of information about Jules. I do know that they're no longer together as of, I think, last year. But Good I have for that, them. like later on in the notes. <laughs> Good for her. <laughs> Took a little while, but they eventually got there. But Ginny also reported there being bite marks on her right hand and bruises on both hands. So like that was a that was an intense attack. And in a diary entry after the May assault, Ian had written about attacking her. After a serious binge drinking episode and injuring her to the point of hospitalization. So he said, quote, I feel sick reading my own report of the events that night. I really wanted to kill her, unquote. Clearly. No shit. Maybe I wouldn't re- say that out loud. Well, and that's the thing. He wrote that in a diary entry. So so you're saying it out loud? Keep that in your mind. Yeah, <laughs> yeah honestly. Because, like, when you say something like that... And then you have this brutal attack and then the brutal murder. It's not a far stretch to think maybe he could have done it. Yeah. In my mind, at least. So Bailey was actually arrested throughout the investigation by Irish police at least twice. The first time was in February 1997, along with Jules. But then they were released. And then the second time was in January of 1998. And they were both released without charges as there was no forensic evidence that linked either of them to the crime scene. So this is where we're going to talk about like the differences a little bit between the Irish and the French like justice systems, because the Irish justice system, I feel like is very focused on physical scientific proof as evidence they don't take like hearsay statements or like witness testimony as like fact Mm -hmm. and so that's the main reason why the irish police has never arrested him and actually like press charges yeah so ian actually attempted to sue eight british and irish newspapers in a libel case because they were claiming that he murdered her but he lost so much of the testimony that I mentioned going forward was actually during that like libel lawsuit. Yeah. 
So he'd also alleged he was wrongfully arrested and the victim of police corruption, but lost the 2015 civil suit claiming as such. There was a watchdog group for the Irish police that found problems in how his arrest was handled, but there was no evidence of corruption. I mentioned this before, but French law allows them to launch official inquiries into the death of French citizens abroad. So they began their investigation in 2008. A European arrest warrant was issued for Ian Bailey in 2010, and an Irish high court ordered him to surrender to France. But on appeal, the Irish Supreme Court ruled against extradition in 2012, and the decision was again upheld in 2017. Because he never actually went to France, they were able to try him in French court for the murder in 2019 in absentia. Basically, it's just in that person's absence. He chose not to be present or to be legally represented at that trial. So like he didn't even have somebody there as like just a lawyer there to represent his side of things. What an idiot. So, yeah. Like that, that doesn't even help if you things. even if you didn't do it, you always have a lawyer. Yeah. Cause like I get it to an extent why he wouldn't go because if he leaves the country, he can be arrested. Like, if he leaves Ireland, like, even if he goes to England, he could be arrested on that arrest warrant. So, like, I understand why he didn't do it, but you would think he would at least have somebody who was there as his representative. But who am I to say? Who am I to tell somebody how to live their life? (laughs) Honestly. So, statements from one witness in particular seem to have been what the court kind of narrowed in on, on their decision to whatever their verdict is, which we'll talk about in a minute. So Marie Farrell made statements in 1997 about seeing a man at, it's some bridge. I, I'm going to pronounce this horribly wrong, It's, but it's probably Kilfada. It's K-E-A-L-F-A-D-D-A bridge, Kilfada bridge at about three in the morning on the morning of the murder. This bridge is about 2.6 kilometers away from the murder scene. She later identified this man as Ian Bailey, But in 2005, she alleged that she had been coerced into making those statements by the Irish police in order to frame Bailey. So I'm sure that was probably part of the lawsuit that, like the civil suit Ian used, but not 100% sure. I didn't see a whole lot of information on that, like coercion aspect. But there is another incidence of the police allegedly framing Ian Bailey that includes memos from interviews with Jules Thomas. So I'm not ruling out the possibility that he was actually like being set up by Irish police. One of those memos said that she had told police that Bailey had gotten up around two in the morning and she hadn't seen him again until nine in the morning when he brought her breakfast. However, later memos of the interviews show that Jules had disputed what they'd recorded her as saying Quote, and essentially accused the Irish police force of fabricating her statements, unquote. So, I I don't know. Am I saying that it's entirely impossible? No. Am I saying that it is likely that the Irish police, for some reason, are just trying to fr- frame this guy? Maybe. I, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, but... I, I, like, why would they choose this guy of all people? Yeah, like, out you of know? all the people in Ireland, why is this yeah. man who they going after? Exactly. Like, what is it about you that makes you think that you're so special that they're framing you for this murder? You know? Period. To be fair, there are cases and incidents of 
this sort of thing in the United States where somebody gets framed for murder because they don't have any better suspects. Yeah, but they usually don't look this guilty. Uh, yeah, agreed. Like, there's a lot speaking to the idea that he might have been involved somehow. Yeah. If he wasn't the one who got, if, if he wasn't the one who actually did it. Alright, so these are some of the statements that I mentioned earlier about him basically admitting to people that he was involved. So, first one was by Malachi Reed, who at the time was 14 years old. So, Ian Bailey gave him a ride home from school on February 4th, 1997. Does he know him? I guess. I mean, from all accounts, it's a very small town, so I would imagine it's one of those places where everybody knows everybody. Um, But I genuinely don't know. weird. So... Agreed. But in that car ride, Reed asked how Bailey was, and Bailey allegedly responded with, fine, until I went up there and smashed her brains in with a rock. Oh. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> what? <laughs> so Malachi Reed's mother was the one who testified on his behalf in the French trial and said that Malachi told her Bailey had been drinking and he was terrified as he drove home with him. And Reed still stands by this statement, like, to this day. So... He's like, I'm not lying. This is this actually happened. Yeah. There's another witness named Richie Shelley who claims Ian pulled out a scrapbook with newspaper cutouts about the murder and began to talk about it with them after they went to Bailey's home on New Year's Eve 1998. So he stated that Bailey broke down in tears saying, I did it. I did it. I went too far. Shelley's late wife stated at the time that they'd spent almost two hours there in which most of it was spent talking about the murder with Bailey leading the conversation. However, her statement wasn't read into evidence in the trial. So that was just like a side side confirmation. Bailey says that these previous two incidents were just him repeating what the locals were saying about him and not an actual admission of guilt. Like him just being like, oh yeah, <laughs> I, I was, I'm fine until I went up, you know, like trying to play it off as like yeah. a joke but don't play Which, it off that's fucking weird yeah like it's it's a murder <laughs> and you're being accused of murder then there's a statement from Hella, helen callanan yeah callanan former editor of the sunday tribune news she said that she had asked bailey about the rumors of him being a suspect and he responded with it was me i did it i killed her i did it to resurrect my career Bailey claims, again, he was using dark humor here, which, like... Well, maybe you should okay. read the room. Yeah, it's like, to be fair, we <laughs> we do a lot of dark humor stuff. However, we the room. we're not accused... Yeah, it's like, we're not accused of murder. So, I mean, <laughs> maybe... Take the hell you will. Yeah, <laughs> maybe don't do that. There's another witness named Billy Fuller who told okay, the court Okay, there's so that many in- witnesses. I so know, that's why, that's why it bothers me that the Irish justice system isn't admitting any of this because they don't take it as like actual evidence like yeah it's circumstantial but if there's so many people who are all saying that he said these things and oh my god it was it's like that um it's like the one case that i just did the suitcase murders everything oh yeah circumstantial (laughs) but it was so like yeah it was very convincing it was like (laughs) dead on the money Billy Fuller told the court that in January 1997, Bailey said what Billy Fuller had interpreted as an admission of guilt. He said, quote, you killed her. You saw her in the shop with her tight arse and you canceled her. So you went up there to see what you could get. But she ran away screaming and you chased her to calm her down. She was scared. So you stove in the back of her head. You realized you went too far. So you finished her off, unquote. Apparently, he had a tendency to speak about himself in the second person with like what that was. 
Obviously, he denies this too, but like, come on, man. <laughs> what? Like, that's very spe- that's very specific. Who speaks about themselves in the second person? I know about like third. I can give it the third, but second? That's fucking weird. Yeah. If you do that, I'm so sorry, but you're fucking weird. I, if I remember right, Ted Bundy did something like that where he okay. was like not talking. Like when they were doing um, the interviews with that journalist and he was trying to get more information about like the crimes and stuff, he didn't talk about it as if he had done it. He was talking about it as like somebody else did it or like asking his like professional opinion, like a psychological evaluation on yeah. the well, reason why somebody would have done something like this. And so he's I fucking mean, weird. <laughs> he's, he'd be in good company. So in May of 2019, Ian Bailey was found guilty in absentia by La Cour de Assise de Paris and sentenced to 25 years in jail. Period. A new European arrest warrant was issued on June 1st, 2019. However, he has not been extradited to France because, again, the Irish courts ruled against extradition. So in Ireland, he's never actually been brought up on charges because solicitor Robert Sheehan of the director of public prosecutions office said that there was quote, no evidence, unquote, against Bailey. So this speaks to the differences in the legal system. So under Irish law, a lot of witness testimony would have been inadmissible as hearsay or because the witness is now deceased. Like, I guess, if somebody has died even if they've said something in court or on like a film recording or something it can't be admitted because that person's dead and you can't like corroborate that information with i think that that's person. how it is here though like if they're dead is it yeah because i'll have to look into that because like if they've made a statement but and then they die after they they make the statement you can't um and put it into um the trial if there's like an ongoing trial because then your witness is dead well, yeah, I guess that makes sense because it's not like you can cross-examine that person. Yeah, I guess if you have something, somebody else to corroborate that statement. Yeah. But if like that's your but, sole witness or your sole victim, and then they die. Yeah, but you have nothing. I mean, there's 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 plenty of of t- witness testimony in here with people who haven't died yet, though. That it's like yeah, but there's nobody on. who saw. Yeah. So, like, this man could just chill, live his whole life in Ireland? Yeah. But if he goes into... Like, if he never leaves Ireland, if he goes into any other European country, he he will be arrested. What a ass. (laughs) What a fucking dickwad. His violent history also wouldn't have been allowed in court. Because this is... uh, A person has to be present to give the the statement orally in court, which speaks to the deceased thing. And then also hearsay and evidence of bad character are not considered evidence because they aren't considered to be, quote, facts which prove the case against the accused, unquote. That's so stupid. If they're a terrible person, you should put that. That is character. Yeah, it's like you have character witnesses for a reason because you want to establish a pattern of behavior. So the fact that they have these three, at least three recorded incidences of domestic violence one of them, which was brutal to the point where she had to be hospitalized. I feel like that's important information. And it's almost very similar to how the victim died. Let me just point out. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, I feel like that's important information that should have been admitted in the court. But I guess Ireland's going to do what Ireland's going to do. But, uh, like I said, in October of 2020, Ireland's high court ruled that Bailey couldn't be extradited to serve his sentence in, in France. Um, so at the moment, the conditions of extradition have hit a stalemate. Still, he's still out and about, just living his life. 
He has written to the Irish police commissioner, Drew Harris, to request a cold case review to prove his innocence, but he has not spent any time behind bars thus far. That's so stupid. Sophie's son, Pierre-Louis, is now in his 40s, and he lives in France with his wife, Aurelia, and two kids, Sophie and Louis, who obviously he named his daughter after his mother. Oh, that's cute. That is very cute. I love that. So he and I believe the rest of the family are all convinced that Ian Bailey is guilty, which, like, even if he wasn't, I, I would understand why they would feel that way. Yeah. Because, like, they want justice. It's kind of like uh, the West Memphis Three, how everybody was just so convinced that yeah, they, but those the, three did it. But the evidence didn't line up. There was nothing to... Yeah. <sighs> I need so, to do that case, because so, that case rocks my shit. Yeah, so I, I, I don't blame you. So it, it's kind of like that, where it's like, I, I could understand why the families would want to hold on to that because it's some it's an answer and sometimes that's all you need is an answer even if it's not the answer because you're not going to be able to get the answer you know yeah he has urged the irish police to look more closely at the case and convict him um or um he's urged like someone to come forward with more information um a specific quote says Quote, please, for you, for me, for my mother, for justice, for all the women who are living in this country, we must end this. Please call me, send me an email, or go to the Garde, Jarde, which is the Irish police force. For sure, you who know something, unquote. The French government actually paid the family 115,000 euros in damages for Sophie's murder. Aww. I guess that's a thing that they do, which... That's nice. I, yeah. Why uh, we don't Because do I know that you can... Well, I guess in a sense, it's like when somebody wins a civil lawsuit and they get paid, like if they file a civil lawsuit against um, like a city or something for the wrongful death of somebody, I guess it's kind of like that. But it's the fact that they have to like sue for that to happen. I, I don't know. And they have to prove it in court. Although with civil lawsuits, it's not beyond a reasonable doubt. It's just a preponderance of the evidence. So it's like, it's like at least like, 51% 51% of the evidence <laughs> proved, like, then then you can you can win a case. So civil suits are a whole lot easier to win, I think, than criminal cases in that respect. So the family established the Association for the Truth about Sophie Toscon de Plantier in 2017, and I will have a link to that in the description of the episode if you want to check it out. I don't know if they do, like, donations or anything like that, but if they do, I would recommend sending some money to see if they can that can help with finding some specific answers on what happened. Yeah. Like I mentioned at the beginning, there are two documentaries that were released recently about the case. So the first one was called Murder at the Cottage, and that premiered, I believe, on Sky Crime. Like, Sky Crime is a UK-specific network. Mm -hmm. So that premiered on Sky Crime at the end of June 2021. And the second one is a three-part Netflix documentary called Sophie, A Murder in West Cork. So... That one, I haven't watched it, but it, I'm planning to watch it. And if I can find the other one, I will also watch that one because they kind of have different twists. Or well, not twists, but different Takes. biases, I guess, yeah. to say. Yeah. Um, so Bailey's actually threatened to sue Netflix over the use of an interview he'd done in 2018, stating okay, that he had Carol signed a release. <laughs> well, he said that he signed a release form that 
like only on the basis that the footage be used for a tease production and not in a finished documentary. And he also claims that the Netflix documentary is poisonous propaganda. It's important to note, like I said at the beginning, all documentaries are going to have a skew or they're going to have a different spin on it because they're trying to come to a specific conclusion. They want you to feel a certain way, which is why that they are showing you specific things. So the first documentary was approaching it as if Bailey was innocent. And the second one was kind of asserting more of the opposite, like that he was the one who did it. So it's always important to take in information from both sides and then come up with your own conclusion. So if I can find the first one, I will also watch that one and we'll see what happens. So there was also a book written about it by investigative journalist, Nick Foster called Mm -hmm. murder at roaring water, where he actually came to the conclusion that all evidence points to Ian Bailey as the murderer. And the author himself said that he initially thought that Ian was innocent, but after digging deeper into the case and spending time with him, he changed his mind. So, One of the things cited in this particular article talking about Foster was um, that he uses as evidence that Bailey referenced Kali, the Hindu goddess of death, in a 1997 interview, and that entries in Sophie's diary mention Kali repeatedly as she developed a fascination with that goddess while in India. And he claims that as, like, proof that that Ian had access to Sophie's intimate writings, but I think that's a stretch. A little bit. Of all of the Hindu gods and, like, of the Hindu pantheon, I guess you want to call it, Kali's probably the one that everybody knows. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> like, she's the most known. So that, that that's a stretch. But, like, it, it, it could be interesting to see what other stuff he has in there as well to see what he thought. Like I mentioned, Jules Thomas did end up breaking up at the end in 2020. So there's the possibility of learning some new information in the coming years. At the moment, though, she's still believes he's innocent so who knows she might take a few years for her to come forward if she even plans to it's not her responsibility but if she knows something she she has a duty to say something yeah somebody lost a wife yeah lost like somebody lost their life in this whole process and so if she has any information even if it's to absolve ian bailey you know then it's important to do that. Yeah. So officially the case remains unsolved in Ireland, but who knows if they're going to keep actually investigating it. Keep I don't know what they could investigate because it's it's not like they really have any evidence to work with because they lost it. They weren't <laughs> so, being good investigators. Yeah. So if anyone has any information on this crime, you can contact the investigation team at Bantry Garda Station at 027-20860 or the confidential line at 1-800-666-111. Or you can contact the uh, association that the family set up at ASSOPH0793 at orange.fr. So that will also be in the description as well since... Who knows if you could actually understand me, but that is the case of Sophie Tostón de Plantier. What are your thoughts? I guess I can legally say it since he was convicted in France, but I think my mans did it. Yeah, I'm I'm leading more towards that too. Just because it's like, there's not really any sort of information out there pointing to anybody else. Nope. That's not to say that there isn't, and that, I mean, it's possible there is and it hasn't been reported on, but... I mean, it looks pretty sketchy there, my guy. It looks sketchy. 
<laughs> it's not looking too good for you. So, who knows? At least in the eyes of the French law, he is guilty of her murder. So, therefore, so. we are speaking in the eye of the French law. I mean, considering I am French. So, partly, therefore, yeah. it works. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm clearly the authority on this. <laughs> yeah. That is everything for us today. So thank you for listening. You can find us on social media at uh, Shockingly Wicked Podcast on Facebook, on Instagram, and on YouTube. We are on Twitter at Wicked Podcast One, and we are on TikTok at Shockingly Wicked. We have our website at shockinglywicked.com or shockinglywickedpodcast.com. It'll take you to the exact same place. We also have our Patreon, which is Shockingly Wicked Podcast, that is linked on our website. Mm-hmm. Basically, any anywhere you can find our social links you will find the patreon link any money that you guys give to us through patreon you will get exclusive content you will also get early access to content all of that money goes directly right into the podcast and improving it for you guys so we can keep doing it yes so we can keep doing it we can keep advancing it making it better for you guys because we want to do this for a long time it's yeah fun. so if you could check those out, that would be grand. That is everything from us. Again, thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.